0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Roxanne Borneman, and I'm a member of this church. I want to extend a very special welcome to everyone joining us here and on online this morning. Since 1870, the UU Wausau has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or your economic situation. Wherever you happen to be on life's journey, you are very welcome here. We are currently worshiping both in person and online so be sure to subscribe to our newsletter, follow us on Facebook or Instagram for updates. I do have two quick announcements for you. The youth group, which is grades seven through 12, will be kicking off their year with an outdoor meetup on Sunday, September 25th from two to four o'clock p.m here at the UU Wausau. There will be games, food, and planning events and projects for the RE year. If folks have them, youth are invited to bring a camp chair, but we will also have a few extras on hand. RSVPs are not required, but are helpful for the food planning. You can contact Jessica at uuwasa.org, And then also just a quick announcement, we do have our community focus collection, so we'll find out who our speaker is shortly. And with that, let us come together and worship together for the lighting of our chalice. And if you would join me in saying in your order of service, We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Please rise as you're able and join together for hymn number 214. please stay standing and join together for our affirmation. Love is the doctrine of this church, the quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer, to dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other, and now our doxology.
1: constantly amazed at all the important things we are born not knowing how to do. Tying shoes, cooking, I sophomore wanted me to add math to this list, and how to ask for forgiveness and how to apologize in a genuine way. I came across this fact of life very explicitly when I would try to convince my then preschoolers that screaming the words, I'm sorry, is not, in fact, the same thing as apologizing to their siblings. (laughs) It's a difficult skill for both preschoolers and octogenarians, so this morning, we're gonna talk about asking for forgiveness, and I want us to learn how to do this together with a process that's been inspired by Soul Matters and my colleague, Kirsten Hunter, on repairing relationship and acting with intention. To begin, I want everyone to think of something you need to ask for f- forgiveness for. Not everything needs an I'm sorry. If you bump into someone at the store, a simple Wisconsin we will do. But some mistakes, mistakes will take many conversations and many apologies. More that can be resolved in this brief time for all ages. So I invite you instead to think on a small mistake you've made that had an impact on another person. Maybe you said something that was hurtful. Maybe you spoke unkindly to them. Maybe you didn't do something you said you were going to do, or maybe you did something you said you weren't going to do anymore. Whatever it is, I want you to tell yourself the story of your mistake. I want you to check in with yourself. Where does this mistake sit in your body? How does it feel? The first step in asking for forgiveness is to imagine. We need to understand how our actions impacted the other person, and we need to practice empathy. So I want you to imagine how your mistake made the other person feel. If you're having trouble, imagine how you would feel if the roles were reversed. Now, I want you to imagine, what would it be like if it was better? As we move on, I want you to hold on to that feeling. The next step is to let go. When we make mistakes, we can feel embarrassed, shame, guilt, weakness, or maybe you're angry about something the other person did first or in return all of these negative feelings can stop us from offering a sincere apology we need to accept that everyone even us perfectionists make mistakes it's not just part of being it's just part of being a human no shame no guilt so i want you to imagine yourself letting go or setting aside your anger guilt and shame I want you to take a deep breath in, and as you exhale, I want you to blow away those feelings. How does it feel in your body to set those feelings down? The next step is to take responsibility. This means to be accountable for your actions and how they impacted the other person. You can offer explanation, but a popular phrase in our house is, apologies don't have a but, one T or two T's depending on the age of your sense of humor. Even if your person did something first or in return, and that is something that should be talked about, you still have to take responsibility for how you responded. So I want you to imagine saying to your person, I'm sorry for the thing I did, and I'm sorry for how my actions made you feel. Be specific. Next is to act. Words are often not enough, and our actions give meaning to our words. They show we care. So I'm going to invite you to imagine something you could do to help fix it or help make them feel better. And if you can't think of anything, imagine what it'd be like to ask your person what you can do to make it better. Finally, is to heal. Asking for forgiveness is one part of this. Asking for forgiveness from yourself, from your person, and maybe offering that person forgiveness in return, and maybe even from a higher power. God, goddess, mystery of life, divine, love, whatever name you give it. Imagine who you need to ask forgiveness from. Who you need to offer forgiveness to, and then imagine yourself doing so. It's also about giving thanks and gratitude for what you have and celebrating return to your relationship. So I invite you to go back to the beginning when I imagined you to feel, asked you to imagine what it would feel like if things were better. I want you to hold on to that. Where does that sit in your body? How does it feel in comparison to where it, if sat in your body with the mistake? I'm going to ask you to hold on to that good feeling. And hopefully this exercise has given you the confidence to apologize and ask for forgiveness and not just scream the words, I'm sorry, at your sibling. I invite you to end our time for all ages with a blessing for our imperfectness, And to bless our children and youth off to start of their RE groups this year with May Peace Surround You. The words are printed in your order of worship.
0: We're going to be kicking off our Community Focus Collection today. And our first guest speaker who will be joining us is Christina Barbier who is representing Fill a Backpack. We'd like to extend a warm welcome to you. Thank you for coming, Christina.
2: Thank you for having me, and I have my phone only so I can set my Stopwatch and I stopped talking on time. So good morning all Good morning. So fill a backpack fill a need is a program in Marathon County that has been in existence since 1999 We provide a backpack filled with common supplies to children in Marathon County who qualify for free or reduced lunch based on family size and income whoa 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 that was pre-COVID We are now post-COVID During COVID, the National Hot Lunch Program became free to everyone, which is a good thing in my opinion. Well, this year, the National School Lunch Program has now decided again that you need to prove you need help, give your income, give your family size. So this is the first year that we will have a way to track statistical information for those in need for Marathon County. But I can tell you that based on 2019, we had at least 7,500 kids who needed help, and through our program, we usually expect about 50 to 55% of those children to need back-to-school supplies. And our program is the avenue. We are the largest and pretty much the only program in Marathon County. Um, we don't we don't care where you go to school. We don't care what your mom and dad do for a living. If you need help, we want to help you. So. The way we've taken uh, a direction since COVID is instead of having families come to us, because we used to have a one day event, everybody would line up, can't do that with COVID. We now distribute directly to the schools. So we have gone on the method of a good faith effort where I said to schools in Marathon County, in 2019, this is how many children we think we helped through through your school. These are the quantities we would have given you one backpack per child, four notebooks per child, four folders per child, and then we did the math. And then we said, look at these numbers. Do you think you have this many children who need help again? And please tell me if you think we need to increase that number or decrease. And we went by every single item that we give. And for those who are curious, we give hopefully large durable backpacks, which is what I'm gonna be asking you to think about. Colorful, not sorry, not colorful, colored wash, washable markers preferred, but you know I think we'll all survive if they're not washable. Colored pencils, boxes of 24 count crayons, single subject notebooks, and two pocket folders. And the schools really like the red, blue, green, yellow for elementary, because teacher will say, hey, it's reading now, pull out your red folder. So those are the colors we ask for, but we will use anything we get. We also ask for number two pencils, highlighters, large pink erasers, black dry erase markers, bottles of glue, as well as glue sticks, and scissors for our 4K through fifth grade. We do not give them to middle school because we have found that their hands will not fit in those tiny scissors that we get donated. So those are the items we provide. Also a pencil box or a pencil pouch, depending upon their age level. Um, But what we have found is by going through the schools, we'll say, you know, for example, X school, you have 100 children that would qualify for this program, do you think all 100 will need help? And they're very honest with us and they're like, we really think about 50 will we need help. And so we will say, do you need 50 backpacks? And they'll be like, ah, eh, we think we could use like 35. And then we go through all of the math for every item. Then we have an, a distribution event. We coordinate in July because we have to give our schools time to have those families come in and get their supplies. So we coordinate in July, they come pick up the supplies, they let their families know, you need help, come see us. And that way, there's no judgment, there's no distance. If you're already comfortable going to your child's school, you don't have to come all the way to Wassa. I mean, we cover Colby, Rochel, Stratford, all of those uh, communities on the outskirts. And uh, you know, to us, we don't believe that anyone's going to ask for help if they don't need it. There's always that, you know, that story of, well, someone wanted the backpack and they sold it on Facebook. I'm going to say baloney. I don't think they're doing that. I think if they're asking for it, they need it. Um, it's very hard for people to ask for help. And we don't really want them to ask us. We want them to just let their school know, hey, we could really use this program. So this year, we gave out supplies to help 3,800 kids. That was the number the schools came back to us with. And I feel next year the number will go higher. We do not have any direct financial support through any program. Every year we ask and we say, please help us. We are not receiving funds from the United Way. And uh, you know every year we say, please help us. So we do have a couple foundations that help us, but for the most part, for community support, what I'm asking you to consider is looking at those durable, large backpacks. The ones that your child can wear it. It won't rip apart. They can use it one to three, maybe even four years. And really any support you're willing to give, because my time is up, we are happy to take. Um, but I really would like you to just focus on those backpacks. If you see them right now, they're on clearance. They were generally like 30 to $35 and they're getting marked down now, you know, 11 to 18. So if you have it in your heart, um, those are the items that our kids could really use the most because we can't afford them through our program. So please think about that. Unfortunately, I'm not able to stay through the end today, but if anyone has any questions, please feel free to reach out. Um, Elizabeth Robinson has my contact information, and I do appreciate your time. And God does have a sense of humor because my last name is Barbier, and I don't like bars, and I don't like drinking. So thank you very much. Thank mm-hmm.
3: I'd like to invite you now to join me in the spirit of prayer and meditation. I' to invite you to start by putting your feet flat and firm on the ground. If you pray or meditate with your eyes closed, you're welcome to close them and let us settle into our bodies by taking A deep breath down into the stomach, in and out. Relax your jaw, relax your shoulders. Let us pray. Oh holy healing in a hurting world, you give us room when we are in distress You hold us close with our tears. You help us see that there are paths into the future. You call us to be healers in a hurting world. And so we bring the pain we bear. The grief, the fear, the emptiness when hope has fled. Spirit of life, we've had our hands so full that more than once we've let some pain slip through our fingers. So now we bring the pain we've still got hold of and offer it to you in this sacred place. Our prayers for those whose souls and bodies cry out for comfort, hope, and healing. A holy mystery of healing love. We celebrate the hard reality of life. We pray that we will be filled with love until the only choice we have is where to spread it in the week to come. Now let us call to mind all the joys and sorrows in our lives and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please stay seated for our prayer hymn number 18, What Wondrous Love Is This? of my sermon theme this morning, which is on the topic of forgiveness, um, I found myself returning to a dear friend of mine, Spencer Reese, who's a, a fine poet and an Episcopal priest. He, In 2015, he had opportunity to work at an orphanage in Honduras. Um, at the time where he went in Honduras, it was the murder capital of the world. And the orphanage that he went to was just for girls, Many of the girls came from the most horrific circumstances. And Spencer, being a poet, invited these young girls to consider their lives through the lens of poetry. And they wrote a wonderful collection of poems entitled Counting Time Like People Count Stars. And in the book there's a poem entitled Counting by a young lady named Island who is 15. And so far as I'm concerned, she may have captured one of the most powerful articulations of forgiveness that I've ever heard. Uh, I always get a little misty when I read it. I'll try not to. Island Rides. Every week, every day, every hour, every minute, and every second that I pass without my family, it feels like a knife trying to get inside a rock. I am the knife, and the rock is my life. So this is me, Island, and this is my difficult life without my family. Some people think that living in a home for girls like our little roses is a big blessing. Yes, I say to those people, it is a great blessing, but at the same time, this is a curse. Every night I start thinking and talking to God in my prayers. Why God? Why did my family leave me alone? And there's no answer. A lot of people see me with my sisters and my aunt, who's not really my aunt, and they think we are a happy group, but really all of us think the same thing that no one ever says. One day, will our mother come to visit us? It is ugly to know that everyone in this school is celebrating Mother's Day. On this day, I feel ashamed to be me. But God, listen to this. I am counting time like people count stars, and I will keep counting until my mother comes. My sisters are graduating, and soon I will go to college too. When I graduate from college and when I am finally somebody in this world, God, I will go straight to Mexico where my mother lives, and I will stare at her like I stare at the stars. And with a voice that cracks like thunder, I'll say, I forgive you. But for now, God, I'm here, and our little roses, counting. Therein ends our reading. Go back in time with me to 1989. Turn on your battery-powered, battery-powered stereo system. Close your eyes. If I could turn back time, if I could find a way. Anybody? No? I've got CDs out in the lobby if anybody wants one this morning. Anyways, <laughs> I'll read the rest of the words. I'll spare you. The song continues. If I could take back those words that have hurt you, and you'd stay. I don't know why I did the things I did. I don't know why I said the things I said. Pride is like a knife. It can cut deep inside words like weapons. They wound sometimes. As if that needs an introduction, that is from Cher's 1989 hit, If I Could Turn Back Time, off her album, Heart of Stone. But if you don't remember the song, maybe you remember the delicious video of Cher wearing a leather thong dancing on a battleship. My parents would never let me watch this. I YouTubed it. It's rated PG-13 if you want to watch it. So if you had to summarize this song, what it's about, what would you say that this song is about? It's about forgiveness, right? It's about the feeling of remorse that often comes right before you ask for forgiveness. I think that inspires you to want to say, I'm sorry, I did wrong. And so forgiveness has been on my mind uh, lately, mainly because I see very little of it these days. As the website Vox wrote back in March, quote, Americans don't know how to forgive, end quote. Today, they said that the most common thing displayed by people like us is outrage. As Ajo Romano writes, quote, the state of the modern outrage cycle is we wake up mad, we go to bed mad, and in between, the only thing that might change is what's making us angry," End quote. And the one thing that might offer us a lifeline, a chance at transformation, a better way forward, is forgiveness. But as the Lutheran theologian Martin Marty wrote, we live in a culture where everything is permitted, but nothing is forgiven. And forgiveness is certainly harder than it sounds, but it's something we all desire. A recent example of America's desire for forgiveness showed up in the New York Times earlier this year. So after years of the pandemic, the New York City public library system was really struggling. Nobody, it seems, in New York City was coming back to the libraries. Did you guys read this? What they did is they devised a scheme that they hoped would get New Yorkers back into the doors of their wonderful libraries. And what they came up with was an absolute masterclass in grace. Here's what they did. They forgave everyone's late fees going back to the 1880s when the first late fees were ever levied. Here's what happened. Within days, thousands upon thousands of books Poured into overnight drop boxes with notes attached to the books that read, quote, enclosed are books I borrowed and kept at my house for 28 to 50 years. I am 75 years old now and these books have helped me through motherhood and my teaching career, end quote, signed anonymous. Another note read, quote, I am sorry for living with these books for so long. They just became my family, signed anonymous. And so over the course of the next four months, 51,000 overdue books showed up in Brooklyn's library alone. 21,000 showed up in Manhattan, another 21,000 in Staten Island in the Bronx, and more than 16,000 books were returned to Queens. People returning these books, they told the librarians, they said, it's like a burden has been lifted from me. Thank you so much. But none of these people, of course, would identify themselves. They all wanted to enjoy their forgiveness anonymously. And so these residents of New York City were treated to this official act of grace. And overnight, New York City's empty libraries were what? Overflowing with people again. And up the street from the Manhattan Library is this marvelous Episcopal Church that you should all check out if you're ever in New York City, and the name of the church is Calvary St. George's, and it has one of my favorite slogans on the marquee. It has three words that they obviously stole from the Universalists, and I'd like some money, but here's what it says. It says, enjoy your forgiveness. Enjoy your forgiveness. That was the message New York City's library sent its city's residents, but as we heard, forgiveness isn't easy. So as the Atlantic writer Elizabeth Bruning notes, quote, As a society, we have absolutely no coherent story, none whatsoever, about how a person who's done wrong can atone, make amends, and retain some continuity between their life and identity before and after the mistake. End quote. That's heady. Basically, we don't know how to forgive and move on. We just don't know how to do it. Or, to put it another way, everyone wants forgiveness, but no one is being forgiven. In our era of polarizing politics, no side is innocent. Sort of perpetuates in our political talk back and forth. But the thing is, is it's not just politics. In the court of public opinion, which is very powerful in today's connected world, For years, we've been reading in our political circles about a thing called cancel culture and all capital scary words. And what cancel culture does is it claims victims. And often the victims cancel culture claims are people who have been canceled by others in their own milieu. So some of the canceled people actually did terrible things, and maybe they deserved it to some extent. But some canceled people are actually just victims. People who question an idea where they failed to express a dominant view on this or that social topic. And so social media has has done a pretty good job of perpetuating this, and I'll admit that social media is really good for sharing cat videos. It's really good for staying up to date with your faraway friends and family, but it also has a sinister quality. Sometimes it can function sort of like a modern tribunal that sentences people to cancellation without anything resembling due process. And journalists, they like to act like this is something brand new. But we all know it's not new at all. Being election season, I've seen a lot of ads for politicians who say things like, my opposing opposing candidate, Mr. Halfwit, supports cancel culture, like it's news. But canceling is really just a 21st century name for shame. That's all it is. It's caveman stuff. It's stuff that came pre-programmed in our brains, just like fight or flight. I read about this in Will Storr's latest book, The Status Game, and he writes this, Whenever we're in the presence of human, whenever any of us are in the presence of human, consciously or unconsciously, we are being judged and measured, and their judgments matter. Wherever psychologists look, they find remarkably powerful links between status and well-being. End quote. The fact is, we are constantly judging people and being judged because if we do it good enough, we get status. But at what cost? A personal story. So the other day, I was at Walgreens. I don't know if you've ever been to Walgreens, but every time you go, you know you're going to be in line for 47 minutes. I don't know why I go. But the other day, I was in Walgreens in one of its infamously slow checkout lines, as of course, as if someone out of a movie character, they were going back and forth with the checker, arguing over their coupons for croutons and Delsum cough syrup. Now, I will admit that I was getting annoyed, but I was doing my best to be a pastor in public and not show it. But even on my very best behavior, I was lured into judgment as the woman standing in front of me, she turned around, she sort of rolled her eyes and showed a familiar spurk. And so instantly this alliance had been created between me and the non-coupon lady. We had our own little status game, us civilized non coupon using chocolate grape jelly buyers. We had aligned ourselves against this annoying, coughing, crouton lady, and we were winning. But the thing about that situation is, in all actuality, we've been every one of those people in that scene. We've been the person forced to be somewhere we don't want to be, interacting with people we'd rather not interact with. We've been the person so desperate that we've resorted to begging. We've been the person too weak to stand alone in their ire, and so they have to look around and drag others down with them. And we've been the spineless onlooker. Jesus tells a similar story. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. Maybe you know it. There's the loving father, the firstborn child, hardworking teacher's pet who gets A's on absolutely every test and inherits the family business. And then there is the druggie dropout who runs away with the family jewels and crawls back empty-handed, sinking a handout from daddy. And what does the father say to the druggie dropout When he crawls back to the family farm, enjoy your forgiveness. Now, I'm sure that that boy eventually got his just desserts. But what mattered first wasn't keeping score. It was forgiveness. Now, most church folks like you and church folks like me, we are sort of like that straight-A student, right? We work hard. We brushed our teeth this morning. We give money to charity. We work in the soup kitchen. We better ourselves. But the thing is, we are also that good-for-nothing Son, and sometimes we are the forgiving Father. The thing is, there is no worthiness in humankind. The only worthiness is that we're all equally worthy, and we're all equally flawed. But the real subject of the parable is forgiveness. And so here's a question. Have any of you ever been forgiven? And I don't mean for breaking a dinner plate. I'm asking if you've been forgiven for lying, for unfaithfulness, for self-righteousness. In my experience, forgiving when you've been wronged is a very hard thing to do. But I sometimes think that being forgiven is almost harder. This thought sparked a couple months ago after I read the journalist Eve Fairbanks' article on the 30th anniversary of apartheid's end in South Africa. All of you will recall that in the middle of the 20th century, leaders of South Africa's government, what they did is they sent emissaries to the United States to study the Jim Crow South. And then what they did is they took our model of the Jim Crow South and they took it back with them to South Africa and they imposed it on their own regime. So they divided South Africa by race and they reserved the very best jobs and the very best land for white people. And as horrifying as this history is, and it is horrifying, what's the story we often tell about apartheid in South Africa? We often tell the story about its rapid and peaceful end that spared even the oppressors. People like to lift up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as the gold standard of how to grant amnesty to perpetrators of hate crimes. But Fairbanks reporting shows that, quote, a startling number of formerly anti-apartheid white people began to voice bitter criticisms of post-apartheid society." End quote. So South Africa still struggles with inequality like elsewhere in the developed world. But what they did was amazing. In the 21st century, they managed to rid themselves of enforced inequality, and when they did that, they gave the world a model of how to replicate this forgiveness. And you would think that if you went to South Africa, that the whole country would just be abuzz with pride. But it's not. And so Fairbanks started going around and she was asking why there was so much disillusion with their success. And here's what she discovered, quote, many, South African, many white South Africans told me that black forgiveness felt like a slap on the face. By not acting towards me as I acted towards you, I feel like I'm being shown up. That's what South Africans, the white ones, felt like they were hearing. In other words, all the white South Africans have no idea how to enjoy their forgiveness. And so in the end, Fairbanks talks to the Afrikaner journalist Ron Milan, who, by the way, opposed apartheid from the beginning and is widely regarded as quite possibly the best white voice on the subject. And so after apartheid ended, Milan, he moved to this upscale, cosmopolitan Cape Town neighborhood and enjoyed macchiatos at seaside cafes with this diverse array of people, something never before possible before apartheid's end. And in one of Milan's most recent essays, he writes, the sea is warm and the figs are ripe. The country knows greater equality and opportunity for everyone, but many white South Africans describe life there as unbearable. Milan just couldn't forgive black people for forgiving him. The Bible was right about a thing or two, Milan writes. It is infinitely worse to receive than to give, especially if the gift is mercy. End quote. What white South Africans received from their black compatriots was grace. The act of allowing people room to be human and make mistakes while still loving and valuing them. This act of grace trusts that wrongdoers can change in time and that we all share dignity and humanity that deserves second chances. But this grace isn't easy. And some people do deserve to be held accountable, and some penalties should be harsh. And this desire for justice is very powerful, so powerful, that sometimes when we witness extraordinary grace, it can almost be offensive. One of the most powerful public expressions of forgiveness in my lifetime occurred on June 19, 2015. In a Charleston, South Carolina courtroom, the families of nine victims shot to death. At a church Bible study, they arrived for a bond hearing, the first court appearance of a suspect charged with killing their loved ones. The judge allowed the victim's families to address the suspect, and absolutely no one knew what was going to be said. Nadine Collier, who had lost her 70-year-old mother, Esther, in the shooting, she was the first to stand up. And the suspect appeared on a video screen, and Collier looked at him, and she said, quote, you took something precious away from me, and I'll never get a chance to talk to her again. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you. Felicia Sanders was the next to address the suspect. The shooter had claimed the life of her 26-year-old son, as well as her aunt. Every fiber in my body hurts, she said and I will never be the same, but may God have mercy on you. One after another, every one of the nine victims' family members offered the shooter forgiveness, and the nation was completely shocked. Politicians, including the state's governor at the time, was calling for the death penalty, which is exactly what the man received. But the victims' families were, and still are to this day, unanimous in grace. And when one of the victim's sisters asked why she forgave the man who committed this horrific act, she said, because forgiveness is the only way. Others may not agree with me, but that's the way it has to be. And once again, the world was reminded that forgiveness is not easy and that it can be at times shocking. But sometimes to heal, you have to forgive something in order to move on yourself. This isn't to say that you forget or that it didn't happen or that the act wasn't wrong. Sometimes forgiveness can be an act of grace to us. In a brief span of life, we encounter countless problems, some caused by others and others caused by us. We'll do wrong, we'll be wronged. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, the second step asks us to accept that only a power greater than us can restore us to sanity. And the wisdom in this step says to accept that we, that we're all imperfect, that we're all status-seeking, in need of forgiveness, and instructions on how to accept it and how to give it. But the act of accepting your flaws lets a power greater than ours rush in. And the greater power that rushes in is grace. That's God's grace. That's what the world woke up to on June 19th, 2015. It's what our nation hungers for but just can't quite summon. That's what white South Africans live with but struggle to accept. That's what New York's libraries offered to the city at the end of the pandemic. That's what led our ancestors to build this church as a monument to salvation and forgiveness. The truth about forgiveness is that all of us, even the best of us, need mercy and forgiveness. The theologian Gilbert Mylander said that the church is not a community where people who are good come together to practice how to get perfect. The church is a place where flesh and blood people accept that we are human, that we are part of the world where suffering and grace and forgiveness all happens at the same time. And for this, we should be thankful that in the end, forgiveness creates the possibility of a new future, one that has the power to break down cycles of violence and heal. So may it be. Amen. I invite you to rise as you are able and willing to join in singing our closing hymn number 201, Glory, Glory, Hallelujah. this morning with someone, I invite you to reach out and take their hand. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. I invite you to have a seat, relax, and enjoy the post loop. See you in a minute. <laughs>